0: It is, uh, it's great to be home here at Mountain Valley, and, and uh, the, the restraining order's up. I could come back today to Mountain Valley. Some of you may not know what we're talking about. It was about uh, two and a half years ago that we started talking with the leaders of Mountain Valley Church. God had some, you know, 14 or 15 years before that, a church was planted here. A light began to shine and as time went on and went by, the opportunity for us to join forces to keep the light shining here came. And, it, and it's been a good, about two years now. And uh, so I was privileged to be a part of all of that. And uh, I think I even hired Matthew Allen Taylor here, so I'm sorry about that. And no, he's, uh, he does a good job, doesn't he? And uh, it's just been great. Yeah, you can clap for Matthew Allen Taylor. Just means you take, you're going to get out here later the more you clap, but uh, no, I won't do that to you. Well, I might do that to you, but uh, it, is, it is great. And Steve said, hey, wouldn't it be great for you to come back and we can do the series on postcards? Why don't you do 3rd John? I got all excited. I said, I love 1st John. You know, he talks about loving one another and I can get traction on that and we can talk about how to apply that. He said, no, 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 you didn't hear me right. 3rd John. I'm like, well, he's got to keep the theme going in 3 John, so I went through 2 John. There's some really good, and then I got to 3 John, 15 verses. Now I know why pastors don't preach on 3 John. It's a heavy. It's not for the faint of heart at all. In fact, if you, if you looked ahead, if Steve prepped you and you read those 15 verses, you could say, hey, I read a whole book of the Bible in preparation uh, for this week. You, you would agree with me that it's a really challenging verse. As Steve mentioned, it really, hits on uh, some good things at the beginning, but it talks about how good leaders get sideways. And, and I want you to think about how many of you have ever known a leader that that's happened to? You know, I think all of us. You know, you say, well, yeah, well, I know Mountain Valley, I know Biscasto Bible Church, everything. We all know at some point in our life how a good leader goes bad, and we've all been impacted that. How many of you... Have seen an experienced and a seemingly good leader, one that you would have never guessed go bad. You remember that? You know, you see people like that and you thought, oh, oh my goodness, I should have seen that coming. There were telltale signs of what was coming. But because of that person's charisma, maybe they were eloquent when they spoke, maybe they were kind to you, maybe they had a big ministry, and we gave them a free pass. It happens. It happens back then and it happens today. And, and here's what we want to talk about. Not only how do good leaders go bad, but I want to run on kind of, kind of a, like railroad tracks. That one, one track is how to recognize that. When you see somebody going sideways, how to navigate that. And, and if you can't help be a part of a solution, to not put yourself underneath somebody who's going to lead you away from God. Nobody wants that. I want to be led toward God. So how do, we, how do we recognize it? I think in these 15 verses in 3 John, we're going to find some principles about godliness and righteousness that will help us when it comes to determining, is this somebody that I can follow? Is this a person of integrity? But here's the second track I want us to run, and then that is, I want us to hold it up as a mirror in our own lives. When you look at your own life, are there some of these traits that are dangerously close to becoming who you are as you lead in your life? So let's face it, every one of us are leaders here, right? You might have a small sphere of influence. Maybe you are parenting or maybe you've got a small group that you lead or you may have a larger sphere of influence. You may be a business owner. You might be a teacher. You might be a a CEO of a company. Every one of us doesn't get off the hook. Nobody gets off the hook. We all lead in some fashion. So as we look at this passage today, uh, think about where you're leading and and how to notice when these traits are showing up in your own life. There are a, a bunch of different characters here. And just to set the scene in, in this passage, the characters, there are four of them, are, are John. John is the author of this. He's the apostle, the one that Jesus loved. Um, and he writes these three letters. He's called the elder at the beginning. And he is, interestingly, the last of the living apostles uh, known, Gaius, Gaius is the other character, it's actually who the letter's being sent to. He was a wealthy businessman. He was the kind of guy that when, when evangelists or Bible teachers would come through town, he would invite them to stay in his home with them. He was a really generous Man, Remember, they didn't really have a Bible back then. They didn't have these 66 books. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have the radio. They might have had um, some letters that the apostles had written. They might have had uh, the Old Testament or most of it. And so Jesus' disciples, his apostles, were bent on sending out emissaries to the various towns where churches had been planted. They would share the good news about Christ. They would talk about Of the gospel salvation, how people could enter into God's kingdom, the one that Jesus spoke about. And they would talk about how do we live our lives as new believers in another world. Jesus set the pattern here. Do you remember when he sent out his followers? He sent them out in twos and they would go from town to town. And he said, When you go, don't take anything with you. Do you remember that? He said, if you're welcomed into those towns, stay there, preach the gospel, minister to those people. But if they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet. You can read all about it in Matthew chapter 10 and go somewhere else. And so the entire spread of the good news of the gospel was really dependent upon people like Gaius being hospitable and welcoming people and caring for those people while they're there. He did this on a regular basis. There's a third guy uh, in our story, and this is really the one that uh, we want to send around. It's a guy by the name of Diotrephes. He was the pastor, if you will. He was the leader of a house church or several house churches in the region where this letter would be sent. And as as we will discover, he wasn't a great leader. He, he really had a lot of blind spots in his life. He was rather arrogant and and what we might consider a loser today. He didn't want John or anyone else coming to the platform because it was my church that's the reputation that this guy has in the Bible. I don't want to be that guy. I wouldn't want to ever be the guy that God would say right about Neil Montgomery and uh, what he didn't do right. I don't want to be that guy. But that's diatrophies. It would be, um, yeah, this letter John was sending was most likely accompanied with 1 John, the impactful letter that was written to the churches. And it was being sent with a fourth person in our story, a man by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius was the mailman here, carrying the letters of of John uh, to these churches. He probably was the evangelist that John was sending, the emissary carrying the precious letter of John with this additional letter of, it's really a commendation of who Demetrius was. What John was saying with this letter is that Demetrius, whom I'm sending, he's the real deal, he's authentic. And when he gets to Diotrephes, Diotrephes is like, no way, not on my watch. What a bad move. It'd be like Pastor Jamie or Steve planning their next series, and they were getting it all ready. And Billy Graham said, hey, I want to stop by Mountain Valley, and I'd love to address your people just for a little bit. And Steve goes, no way, not as long as I'm the pastor here. Would that be a bad move? Probably. (laughs) Probably a bad move. It would probably say something about the character flaws in the church. So that's the background, those are the four characters we want to look at here uh, with this as we dive in. So if you've now found 3 John, now you have enough time to do that, it's uh, back at the end of your Bible, Revelation, keep going to your left, Jude, and then you get to 3 John. Now I just want you to know that there's no screen up here and you guys have been in a bad habit of pretending the person who's speaking can't see you, I can. So I can see nobody turning to their Bibles. And uh, nobody getting their outlines out. I know it's just a bunch of lines, but I will be grading these and we will be collecting them at the end. I can see. I can see your reactions. I can see if you fall asleep. I am right here. Right? Steve's playing Pokemon Go over there, but he can. He's already heard this. But anyways, as you look at this, let's read these verses together. 3 John 1. It says, To the elder, or the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love, In truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and they testified to your truth. He's talking to Gaius, this man who's going to host, Demetrius. He says, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers of the truth. What a beautiful commendation that John is giving to Gaius. He's welcoming these people. He is doing the work of the body of Christ. And many people feel that way today. You come to church, you feel like you're taking up a a seat, and you drink some coffee, you consume, and then you... No, the church, you play a vital role in welcoming leaders, praying for your leaders, supporting your leaders in any way that you can, so that their work is a joy, and so that they can lead well. And so everyone has a seat in the body of Christ, and that's probably another sermon for another day, but let's dive into the to the crux of this here in verse 9 where this takes a turn in this little letter of commendation. Here's what John says in verse 9. He said, I've written something to the church, but, it's always the clue phone, Diotrephes, you may want to underline this, circle this in your Bible, who likes to put himself first. This is the one line that will sum up this guy in the Bible. He says that Diotrephes does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come... I'm gonna bring up what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. He refuses to walk in the brothers and also stops those who wants to and he puts them out of the church. Beloved Gaius, do not imitate evil but imitate good. Whatever is good is from God. Whatever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony, Gaius, is true. And he closes out his letter. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Fifteen verses, a a postcard uh, of a book here as one of our 66 books in the Bible, basically saying Demetrius is a good guy. And Diotrephes won't let his ministry take place. And so in this letter, I think we find some incredible insights about the character of leadership. As much of a downer as it might seem, I think we can walk away here with what, what God wants to build into each of our lives so that we can effectively be about his work in our realms of influence. And that's important as you come to church that you understand that this is not the job of a pastor to come up here and be a talking head for 35 Minutes and then we go home and apply for No, God wants you to be in Christ for the world. And sometimes we get that backwards. We think we're in the world for Christ. But as you abide in him, you're gonna realize that God has created you for one purpose, and it's his purpose, not yours. And the sooner you can get there, the better off you're gonna be as his leader, as his worker in the harvest field, and that's what we can learn from this book, to be about God's work. And so as we look at how good leaders go bad and what to watch for, I, I want to step back just for a moment and, and I want to state what should be obvious but oftentimes we miss. And that is in, in a church like Scottsdale Bible Church, uh, we have a large platform. We have 14 different services going on all throughout the weekends. It's a fairly large church. It would fit under the definition of probably mega church. And, and it's a very easy in our country for us to look at the large campuses that we have, the multi-sites that we have, and to begin to think, oh, God must be blessing that church. they got 28 pastors on their staff. They've got all those incredible ministries that Steve spoke about. It, it must be a sign of God's approval because we all have this tendency to look at what's going on with the outward things and, and determine that if that's happening, God must be approving. Especially, you ever see a speaker who's an author? Aren't they cool? They usually come to your church and they're selling their books in the lobby, right? But we think they must be validated. They're not, or, they're a, or better yet, they, they're, they have a doctorate. They have their do- I'm Dr. Montgomery. Or they, or they have a radio program, even better. Or if you see somebody with their name, SteveEricksonMinistries.com, you know, you sort of feel like, oh, God must be approving all the things that they, they do. They must be God's blessing. But maybe that's true. But I want to give you a, a warning here. Maybe it's not. You see, in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gave us uh, the litmus test of how to tell if somebody was truly a teacher from God and if somebody was a false prophet from God. Do you remember what he said? He said, you'll know them by their fruits. And, and it's not the kind of fruit, but he didn't mean you know, people that have this eloquence or they can pull a crowd together, the books they're written. No, 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 what Jesus meant by fruit was that they had character, that they were godly people marked by this filling with the spirit. And the Bible is full of stories of people who have incredible outward success and horrible character. Do you remember the story of Samson? I love that story. Samson was this strong guy. He could sort of tear down an entire army with the jaw of a donkey. He was incredible. He was a leader of the nation of Israel. An outwardly incredible success. Whenever the enemies would come and attack Israel, he would single-handedly tear them down. He was a hero on the outside, but inside he was a mess. You remember his problem? He had a sexual problem. He was deceitful. And yet, outwardly, he kept having success, but he kept messing around with his morality. And at the end of the story, Samson is nothing of the man that he once was. He loses all of his strength. His eyes are literally gouged out by the enemies, and it's a mess. Remember Balaam? A little obscure story in the Old Testament. He had a donkey. Remember what the donkey did? The donkey talked. And that's a good story to remind pastors that God can even speak through donkeys at times, and that should keep us humble alone. Or, or how about Judas? Do you remember Judas? He betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and we hold him up as the guy who was an awful inside mole, and yet, did you know Judas did miracles? you remember when Jesus was sending out his leaders two by twos to go from town to town? He gave them power, the power of his spirit to do miracles, to cast out demons, to speak and to teach with authority. You know who was on that team? Judas was on that team, and yet he was a bad guy. You see, God can take a Samson. He can take a Judas, crooked sticks. He can still draw a straight line because he's God. Like the song that Matt sung, he's a good, good God. That's important. He's good, and we are not. We are only made good because of him. Justified by his spirit, if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God makes us right. Nothing that we do, and we've got to heed that. There are so many well known pastors, authors, radio voices, people who have large ministries, godly people full of integrity, doing a great job out there. But there are also a lot of leaders with the same kind of success who have character flaws, and yet people still follow them. It always amazes me. Why do people give people a free pass when their morality and their character comes out? I get grace. I love that. I want to be in the front of the line giving people grace. But when somebody stays in a position and holds that power, sometimes we give them a free pass because of that eloquence. Or maybe they were nice to me. And I'll tell you, it's a dangerous path to walk down. I don't want to name names. I think that's a bad deal. I hope when we leave here today, we have a sort of a filter that we're able to build so we can recognize this whenever we see it and that we also have a mirror so that we can recognize this in ourselves. And so five things in the few minutes that we have together that how do we recognize or what do we watch for in a good leader and in ourselves that might indicate we're sort of going bad. And and the first one you might have guessed it is this if you're taking notes. It's a big ego, A, a big ego, in verse 9 of, of 3 John here, John writes, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Big ego is someone who needs to be first. Egotistical need-to-be-first type leaders are dialed in and all the status symbols. You know people like that? The people that have the special parking spots and the perks and the, and the praise. They have this insatiable need to let everyone know who they are. Have you ever met people that way? You may want to write down Matthew chapter 23. It's when Jesus opposes the Pharisees. And, and he describes what the Pharisees were like. I'll just tell you. It says everything they did was to be seen by men. Jesus would say on the outside you're clean, but inside you're filthy rags. God is always about our heart. And it begins with you and me and extends to our ministry and to our leadership. They loved the places of honor at banquets. They wanted to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They loved it. If you called them rabbi, oh, how they loved that. I remember meeting with a group of pastors in a little church I was at in Wisconsin. Go Brewers! Just kidding. There's some people still here. I thought all the Canadians and the Northwesterners, or Midwesterners left. And we were around this table It was at a hospital. They were thanking pastors for their ministry. They really recognized doctors and church uh, hospital ministries, recognized the the powerful role of pastors in praying for and actually seeing people healed. It's medically proven. It happens. And they were welcoming us and thanking us with a beautiful dinner. And we sat around there, all these local pastors, introducing ourselves. One guy said, my name's Mike. I'm the pastor of the Assemblies of God Church off of Jefferson. Another guy was Dave. He was at the uh, Pleasant Valley Pray Center. I'll never forget that. Another guy was at United Methodist Church. He said, my name's Dave Too, and I'm at the United. We just around the circle. We got to um, one man who was dressed in a three-piece suit with a tie with a button that said, we're the friendliest church in town. Somebody should have told his face because he was kind of grumpy looking. (laughs) We're premillennial, fundamental, King James only, and we love you. And he said, my name is Dr. Jack Martin. I'm like, whoa, it's just a bunch of peers around here. I thought, does your wife have to call you that too? I never said that. But as dinner went on, I kind of talked to Jack and I said, I just talked to him and and I said, Jack, it's so nice to be working in this town with you. And he was kind of grumpy the whole time. And that week, literally, I got a letter with their letterhead from his church, a scathing mail that said, Don't ever call me Jack. It's Reverend Martin or Brother Jack. And I was broken. I I thought, you know, when is this guy going to implode? I don't wish that on anybody. And yet a few years later, this church went sideways and his ministry was no more. I don't celebrate that at all because when things like that happen, I think we all get painted with the same brush. But here's the thing about ego and the need to be first mentality. It invariably flows out of insecurity. Why do I know that? Because I've seen it in my own life. You have it in your life. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been standing in line at the buffet? If some of you are thinking about that right now. Yeah, if you could hurry up, we'll get there first. And you're in line and some little kid cuts in front of you, What goes through your mind? Punk, get back to your mouth. No. Does it bother you? Not really. He's a kid. He's a He's a little kid. But if somebody your size cuts in front of you, what goes on in your mind? Who are you? That you would cut in front of me? Why? Because they're threatening, this little threatening. Why do they think they're more important? That's insecurity. Now somebody bigger than you comes, you just let him in. Like if Steves in, you, Steve, just you go right ahead of me. No problem. Yes, sir. And enjoy your buffet, sir. And all, we love to tease each other. And what, what's going on there? Why can a little kid come through and we don't think much about it? Because it's our insecurity. And one of the signs that insecurity, it's not a bad deal, but you have to recognize one of the s- signs that it's getting out of line in our lives is when those little perks, those little entitlements, maybe the title that you have at work, the car that you get to drive, when they become really important to you. That's a sign that we need to be looking out and asking ourselves, is there a possibility that I might be going sideways? You see it in church ministries with certain titles and parking spots and so forth. I know pastors who when people walk into the room, they expect them to stand. It just, it makes me sick. And it happens in our workplaces. It happens in our neighborhoods. It happens in families. I I knew one pastor who made his children call them pastor. And it happens in your families too, out of our insecurities. The need for praise, perks, and privilege is a bad sign. And I warn you, privileges and perks, as you rise up in your workplace or your sphere of influence, they can move you from something you're grateful for to something that you expect. Matthew chapter 20 Is a great example where John, the author of this book, is captured in a story that's not so flattering. James and John come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, you've been telling us all about this kingdom. Can we be like first and second in the kingdom? What do you mean by that? You know what's even worse about this story? They never actually asked them. You know who they sent? Their mother. What is that saying? My boys are A students. Can they be first and second in your kingdom? It's interesting how Jesus replies. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't shame them. He doesn't say, shame on you or woe is you. You know what he says? That's not for me to decide. That's my father's deal. And he goes in in an amazing way. He says, but if you want to be first, that's not a bad deal. But here's the way to be first. It's not by going up. It's actually by going down. My path is not to be served, Jesus said. My path is to serve. My path is to put myself the lowest on the run. If you want to make your mark, it doesn't happen by being like Diotrephes, but by being like Jesus. You might want to jot down Philippians 2 for later. Some of you know that passage. It talks about doing nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility, each of you consider others more important than yourselves. That's how Jesus said, and it goes on to say that Jesus, who was actually God, didn't consider equality with God something to be to grasp, but he humbled himself, becoming a man, a man all the way, to the cross, humbling himself to his own death. And you know what God said? That's first. It goes on to say that therefore, because he did this, God highly exalted him. And we're to have that attitude in ourselves. So aspire away. Nothing wrong. The Bible talks about being excellent in all that you do. Be the best. Work your way up. But it's not the Diotrephes path. It's the Jesus path. And we need to jettison our ego. Here's a second one. It's isolation. From this passage, Diotrephes appears to be a loner working on his own. He's the only leader in the Bible mentioned by himself. Every other minister, even Jesus, are surrounded by peers. And what I've realized, and perhaps you have, is that the most self-centered leaders I've ever met are leaders who are isolated. And it can work for a while as long as everything's going great. But leaders who love themselves, who think they have all the answers, it works wonderfully until they don't. And the house of cards comes running and unravels before us. You may want to jot down Proverbs 27, 17, that verse, Proverbs 27, 17, that says, as iron sharpens iron, you know how it goes, right? So one man sharpens another. We can't sharpen ourselves alone. We need this. We need community. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but wise people listen to advice. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a decision that you were absolutely sure was the right decision, only to have it blow up in your face? Has that ever happened to anybody, or is it just me? I mean, yeah, some people, I can see. I can see. I'm not on the screen. I can see it out here. It does. How many of you were warned ahead of time not to do what you did? I've had that happen. Don't do, oh, no, 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 I know better. And so we all know what that experience is like. But when I see an isolated, a need-to-be-first leader, I not only don't want to be under them, I really don't want to associate with them. I've seen this tendency in my own life, and when I do, I want to get right back to the Word of God. I want to confess that to a friend. I want to be held accountable to that. See, isolated people, when it doesn't work, you know what happens? They become grumpy people. That's why it's so important if you have the love of Jesus in your heart, you should tell your face. Because the joy of the Lord should be effervescent in our lives. But people who are isolated are unteachable, argumentative, and arrogant. They're successful to a point, but it unravels. You know a great modern day example of this is Steve Jobs. You know Steve Jobs? Founder, CEO of Apple. He was one of the most stubborn guys if you read his book. And that was actually one of the wonderful things. He was so stubborn, it was a secret to his success to a point. But in Steve Jobs' life, he he contracted pancreatic cancer. And his was actually a curable kind of cancer. But because the character's stubbornness carried all the way through, he refused a treatable treatment, if I can use that phrase, that would have potentially and probably cured his cancer. He decided he knew better. He went to all these alternative medicines and treatments and thought, I can do this. I'm Steve Jobs. For a while, it seemed to work, but ultimately it didn't work. And by the time he came back to the doctors, it was too late. His stubbornness killed him, and that's the infection or the curse of isolation. If some of, some of you see this in your own life creeping up, and so heed the warning not only to be leery of others, but leery of it, be leery of it in yourselves. Third one is slander. Look at verses nine and ten, or verse ten. John says, I'm going to come, I'm going to bring up what Diotrephes is doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. Slander refers to someone who has a critical bent or spirit that seems to take joy in pointing out the faults of others. Have you seen people like that? They just love to point out, as soon as you do something wrong, they're like, see, I've been on websites that seem to take great joy in pointing out the apostates in our culture. Now, is there a time to confront wrongs in the Bible? Absolutely there's a time. To confront wrongs. But to be a pit bull for Jesus, to be contentious, that's what John is saying. That's not becoming of a leader of God. It's not becoming of a follower of God. Whenever you find someone who's argumentative and contentious, even if it's something that you might agree with, run from that person. See, in the list of qualifications that are given in the Bible for an overseer in the body of Christ at any level, not just pastors, Paul says one of the things that they can't be as contentious. Sometimes we turn a blind eye to people who are argumentative because we think, well, they're right. They're speaking the truth. They're just not doing it in love at all. Paul says stay away from those people. They're not qualified. Diatrophies people are always spreading the bad news and they do it without gentleness and they do it with anger and they do it with resentment. Write down a couple of verses. James chapter 4, 11, says, do not slander one another. Don't sp- spread negative reports. You think God can defend himself? Yeah, He can. Galatians 6.1 says, if someone is caught in a sin, put it on Facebook, social media, tell them, no, it doesn't say that. It says, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently and also watch yourselves or you might be tempted. See, none of us are as great as we think we are, especially pastors. We can start to believe our own press clippings and they're not true. Romans 12.3 says, look at yourself with sober judgment. Titus chapter three, verse one, remind people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, and to slander no one, but to be peaceable, considerate, and always gentle. That word always means always. Gentle to everyone, to everyone. So if you find a pit bull for Jesus, it's angry, feisty, argumentative, um, protecting God, saying they just have a rough edge, you just gotta get past. No, it's a diatrophies edge is what it is. Avoid those people. You wanna be careful. Fourth one is an us-them mentality. You ever seen that? Diotrephes, when people were coming to him, he was looking for ways to exclude them from the work of God, exclude them from the kingdom, yet the gospel talks about Jesus and his is to include everyone into his kingdom. Look again at verses 9 and 10 in this passage. He says this about Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. He doesn't acknowledge our authority. That's an us-them mentality. He says, if I come, verse 10, I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wi- wicked nonsense against us. That's an us-them mentality. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Us-them mentality. He stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Us-them. Don't hear me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The Bible does say there are boundaries. There's biblical boundaries. 1 Corinthians 5 has a whole list uh, of different sins that if people commit them, they're to be removed from the church, but the goal, gently, is to restore them. But we don't tolerate it. There are doctrinal boundaries because everyone who just waves the flag of Jesus isn't teaching the same Jesus of the Bible. And the problem is that many of the us, them issues we have are not based at all on clear black and white teachings of Scripture. When we get that us, them mentality, it's usually when we go down to traditions. You ever notice that? Or my preferences in the Bible. I prefer this style uh, of music or whatever it be. Or speculations about things like the end times, right? I've got a whole timeline. I've got it all figured out. I know when Jesus is coming back. Do you? Then you're out of the church. You ever see people ask a talk? Line it up. No, you're, you're probably going to hell because you don't believe the same way we do. But it, that's people literally say that. Or spiritual gifts. If you don't have certain spiritual gifts, Sorry. You're not welcome at this church. Or some churches are more concerned, some leaders, with what's in your fridge more than what's in your heart. And they have a whole list of questions. If you got one wrong, you were out. That's an us-them personality. Again, Jesus didn't come to exclude people from the kingdom of God. His goal was to include people in the kingdom of God. You might want to jot down Philippians chapter 1. It's a passage that um, Paul talks about a church that has it in for him. And they're ministering out of envy and, and rivalry, it says in First uh, Philippians 1:15. And they do it out of selfish ambition and they're trying to cause trouble. But it's interesting, Paul's reaction in verse 18. We would think, sue the church, pray down, fire on them, get out of there. But look at how Paul reacts in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. That's an opposite of an us-them mentality. That's trusting that God is bigger, allowing people to be wrong, staying the course as a faithful leader of integrity, and it works. And the last one is this it's an iron fist. What we saw in verse 10 is that Diotrephes stopped anyone who wanted to welcome any of these people in John's party, and he actually kicked them out of the church. You can't even be in here. And that, again, is fear based control. Have you seen that in leadership? Have you seen it in your own life? We lead out of fear and so we react. And, and rather than just being right or being integrity, you ever notice people get louder or they get more insistent or they begin to put somebody down? That's fear-based, control, iron fist kinds of leadership. We need to run for that, from that. Vindictive and mean styles of leadership can show up in parenting, can show up in our management, it can show up on your coaching, and it can show up in church leadership. It's a diatrophies infection, not a Jesus infection. You know, John spoke so passionately here in 3rd John. It's kind of a downer of a message, but there is much in here for you and I. You know why John spoke with such passion? Remember, he was the John of James and John who wanted to be first. He wanted to be at Jesus' right hand. He wanted to be at Jesus' left hand. And Jesus said, that's not for me to decide, do you remember? John was also called a, one of the sons of thunder. At one time he said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire on these people who are doing things in your name and they're not part of our group? And Jesus, Jesus corrected and rebuked him. on you Remember that? See, John was a diatrophies. Why is this so important to me? Because you know what, in my own life, I was a diatrophies. As a young pastor, I was starting out in a small church, I was energetic. Oh, I could say things, I was, I was funny. This is not a funny passage, so I can't be funny right, but there's, and, and I was winsome, and I love people, and you know what? Sometimes I loved what you thought of me more than what God thought of me, and for many years in ministry, what drove me was what people thought of me, and so I wanted to be winsome so that you liked me, and what I forgot was what God already thought of me. God said, when you put your faith and trust in me, I already declared you right? You already are someone that I love dearly. You're already justified. Why are you working so hard that it'll exhaust you? And I was getting exhausted. I really was. I spent uh, 12 years in a town that I loved, never wanting to go away. And one night I came home and my wife said, you haven't been home for 21 nights in a row. I was exhausted trying to get people to like me. I was exhausted trying to be right. And God gave us a, a, really a life preserver in a church that called and said, would you come and work with us? I never wanted to leave this church. I loved it, but what I loved was me. And what I loved was what people thought about me. Hardest thing I ever did was leaving that church, but the best thing I ever did was restore my relationship to God and wholeness and integrity, my marriage to my wife, and riding the ship to say, I can lead in a new way. Do you relate to that? I spent a year in therapy with a godly, godly man who works with pastors. Thank God for therapists who work with pastors. Steve needs it. God only knows so badly. <laughs> But you know, I say that jokingly, but we do. And we're gracious for a church like you that allows us to be real people, genuine people, but don't ever let a leader in this church ever go sideways because now you have a filter that says it like it is. And more than anything, hold it up as a mirror in your own life so that you don't become the father, the husband, the coach, the leader, the light in the community that people look at and say, if Christianity is what they are, I never want to be a part of it. People should look at us and say, what are they doing differently and want to be a part of and be sucked up into the, the, the momentum of a great church. People filled with integrity, know how to put their egos to the side, and let God be the big God that he is. Let's close in prayer and then let's go out to be that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these wonderful words. Hard, hard-hitting, tough things to say. I don't know whatever happened to, to Diotrephes. We never are told to hear in the word of God. But I thank you, Lord, that we live in 2016, every one of us, that we have a role in your work. And I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that. Pray to help us, Lord, if we're just caught in sin or we're caught in the the, the place of just struggling with um, our identity, that today that we would know that you have declared us right. And if we have never put our faith in you, that, that one or two or other people that might be here, they would do that today. Would you bless this church, strengthen her? May she be strong. May she have the reputation of a church that loves and cares and points people to you. And we'll praise you for it in your son's name. Amen.